0: Lord, we come today with many things that we don't fully understand. Lord, we we think we should, and we want to, and we try really hard, but we don't fully understand. It may be, Lord, that we don't fully understand You or what You're doing. We don't fully understand ourselves, or we don't fully understand life, or whatever it may be. Lord, this morning, I pray that You would help us to fully understand what, what You want to do in and through us, by the power of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we trust You even without all the answers. May we follow You even without light on the entire path. may that be so this morning. We pray as we open Your Word that You would change us, that we would walk away differently from having truly worshipped You through song and through hearing Your Word proclaimed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you last week about my son Hank and his desire to play baseball long term. We have more than one child who has long term plans. My five year old daughter Nora is a gymnast, and Nora is extremely athletic and wired for sound most of the time. If you understand what I mean, and Nora is a sweet girl and and we love her very much and gymnastics is her outlet for her energy. (laughs) And thank God for those kinds of outlets. If you are a parent, have been a parent of young children, or around young kids at all, and you praise God with both hands raised extremely high to the air, thank you, Lord, for things that are an outlet. And gymnastics uh, is Nora's outlet, so much so that she uses all the furniture in the living room and anything she can find as her vault and her her, uh, her uneven bars and so on and so forth, and it got to the point where Nancy and I realized we're going to have to do something to provide her a little bit of structure, or else we're going to have to do furniture, so we went the cheap route, and we got some tape uh, that was that painting-type tape, you know, you stick to the walls, and you're going to paint the corners and all, and we put that down the rug in the living room, right down the middle, for a balance beam. And Nora does her flips and her cartwheels, and she does all this stuff there on the balance beam. Now, that balance beam is relatively easy for her to do because when she actually goes to gymnastics class, which she'll go to tomorrow night, the balance beam scares me to death scares her to death. She likes the one that's on the floor, but not the one that's raised up. I can't say that I blame her. I would not, in my condition, want to get up on a balance beam right now. Let's just say, uh, you know, some of you call me imbalanced, but I'm just not exactly in the shape that I want to be in to try something like that, if you know what I mean. But if you think about it, the balance beam is raised up. It's it's the scariest and her least favorite event. The others that she likes, she's on the ground but easier when you're on the ground for the most part. The balance beam, though, scares her. And I think rightly so. She's only five years old, doesn't have a lot of experience with that, and eventually she'll get better. But you know there are times when Nora wants to quit gymnastics because the balance beam is just too hard and too scary. And it's hard to stay up there. And I've seen her from afar jump off the balance beam pretending to fall off so that she won't have to do what it is that the coach has told her to do because it's too hard, it's too scary, even though I know that she has within her what it takes to stay on that balance beam. Now, it doesn't take a big stretch to equate that to how life is quite often for us. When we seem to have it all under control and it all makes sense, then we're pretty good walking down that living room floor on that piece of tape where everything is pretty stable. But then when things get raised, when we don't fully understand everything that's going on, when we feel as if we might fall, then we get scared. Then we don't want to do it. We want to give up. And life gets a little more difficult. I really believe that it often feels as if, in my life, and I'm sure that you're just as human as me... It feels probably in your life that life is like living on a balance beam, trying to figure out what all must be done and how to keep it all together. But I want you to know that this sermon is not just about how to juggle the things in your life and do them better. Because I believe also not only is that difficult, but it's also on the surface. Because deep within us, there are things that we must balance in life, and there are things that we must try to keep going in life, That are really more important than trying to keep your to do list or your task list in order. How do you balance everything in life that comes at you? How do you balance what you know theologically, what you know about God, and then everyday life together? They're both ends. You can't just live in some theological, God-oriented world without living in the real world as well. It's both. So how do you get it all right? We're going to look at the Scripture this morning that I believe will speak directly to that and show us, ultimately, as we fast forward to the New Testament, how can we get that right. So turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes follows the book of Proverbs. 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, we are on chapter 7 in a series that will take us through all 12 chapters talking about the idea of chasing the wind and how there are so many things in life that that ultimately are meaningless had a conversation this weekend. We traveled to Louisville to visit with my parents for a couple of days. And I was doing the sermon preparation at a coffee shop there in Louisville and ran into a guy who was sitting right behind me that I hadn't seen in probably 20 years. A fellow that's relatively close to my parents' age whose daughters I grew up with in church. And we got to talking and he said, he said, 15 to 20 years ago, I had Everything. He was a real estate guy down in Florida making loads of money. And he said, when the real estate market crashed, I lost everything. He said, but I realized through it all that that stuff is utterly meaningless. And immediately I thought of Ecclesiastes. And I told him, I said, I'm preaching a series just on that, of how what we can chase in life really winds up with nothing in our fingers but the wind, which is nothing at all. That's what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes. The teacher in the book, or the preacher, shows us all the things you can chase that are meaningless. The author of the book shapes his, this teacher's thoughts and and ideas into a point at the very end that says the ultimate thing is to fear God and to obey Him, and that's what life is all about. And so we're tracing all of this through this series. Last week, we found uh, that the only thing the teacher seems to think has any value whatsoever is wisdom. So we saw some words to live by last week, some advice that will help us to become wise, to become the people that we are to be. And so now in, in this particular passage, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 7, the teacher continues this build up of what the wise person looks like. So look with me, chapter 7, verse 15, we're going to look uh, through chapter 8, verse 1. In my futile life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. Don't be excessively righteous, and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Wisdom makes the wise man stronger than ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. I have tested all this by wisdom. And I resolved I will be wise but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? I turn my thoughts to know, explore, and seek wisdom and an explanation for things, and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net, and her hands chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says the teacher, I have discovered, This I have discovered by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation, which my soul continually searches for but does not find. Among a thousand people I have found one true man, but among all these I have not found a true woman. Only see this. I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes chapter 8 verse 1. Who is like the wise person and knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom brightens his face and the sternness of his face is changed. I I want this morning to look first at what these verses have to say about the value of wisdom, then about the reality that's presented here, even if you are a wise person. And And then I want to look at what life is truly like on this balance beam. And finally, at the truth that must take over our lives from this point forward, if for we're truly to navigate life. So, I, I want you to know wisdom does have incredible value for your life. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you may say, well, this teacher seems to think that nothing, not even wisdom, has any kind of value whatsoever. Just do whatever you want to do. That's not what he's saying. He says, look at verse 19 of chapter 7. He says, Wisdom makes the wise man stronger than ten rulers of a city. Now, this verse, I'll just let you know, is the reason that the St. Louis Cardinals are still playing baseball, and I won't won't make this too personal, and the Washington Nationals are not. The team that the Cardinals played in the first round, now some of you here, are out of God's will, you've drifted from God, and you have given yourselves over to be St. Louis Cardinal fans. I am, every day, okay, I'm giving myself to the ministry of the Word and prayer for those of you who obviously have lost your way, but... That aside, uh, in your sin I will deal with you accordingly. All right, but anyway, the the uh, the St. Louis Cardinals in Game Five of the National League Division Series are down two runs in the last inning. And they have a hard-throwing right-hander named Drew Storen pitching against them for the Washington Nationals. And this guy is the kind of guy that can throw it through a car wash without getting it wet. I mean, he throws it hard. That is him. And so, Drew Storen is on the mound, and he's trying to mow down the Cardinals in the last hand. And you know what they do? They, instead of meeting power with with trying to have more power, they simply were patiently. I've I've, I've rarely been as impressed by a whole team approach of hitting than the Cardinals that night. They didn't try to do anything more than just take what was pitched to them, hit the ball the opposite way, wait for the pitcher to make a mistake, and capitalize on it. Some of you watched that game and, and, and you saw that. They were so wise in their approach that they were stronger than the guy throwing the ball 97, 98 miles an hour. And I think that's what relates here that wisdom, even in that sort of sense, makes a person stronger than those who appear to be so strong and powerful. Because four runs later, the Cardinals, who are on their way to the National League Championship Series, and the Nationals, who seem so powerful, are on their way home. Wisdom makes the wise man stronger than ten rulers of a city. This teacher here brings up the rulers, maybe the city council or something like that, which of course has tremendous political power, certainly in that day and even in our day today, elected officials and so on. But he says a person who has wisdom is more valuable than even those who hold positions of power. Why? Well, if you think about it, every president who's ever held the office in the United States has what are called presidential advisors. They need wise people around them, and it's quite often true that those who are political advisors to the president have more power even than those who hold the office, because the president listens to them and so on. He's saying that even an entire city council, ten rulers of a city, though they have great strength, are not as strong. They have less strength than one wise man, even a poor, uneducated wise man who lacks any sort of political position. So he's not talking about physical power or strength, but true authority, power, leadership. The person who fears God, who receives true wisdom, this is the person that has nothing to fear. They can face tomorrow with confidence because they are wise and they know the Lord. That's what he's saying, the incredible value of wisdom. He goes on to talk about that wisdom not only strengthens you, but it helps you to see things for what they really are. Verses 25 and 26, this is what he says, I turn my thoughts to know, to explore, and to seek wisdom and an explanation for this. and to know that wickedness is what? Stupidity. And folly is madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net, and her hands chained. the one who... Pleases, God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. What is he saying? If you have wisdom, you'll recognize things and see them for what they really are. You ever known someone who's just so naive about things? They don't. They don't truly understand when someone is doing this or that to them. They don't. They don't see life for what it really is. They don't understand the consequences, so on and so forth. The teacher is holding out. Wisdom has great value because it helps you to see the way things really are. Now, you can take this as a literal woman here. Uh, the, the temptation, obviously, what, what gets us into a lot of trouble in life is the opposite sex from a young age all the way up. Guy's trying to get the girl. Girl's trying to keep the guy. Or husband's not understanding their role. Wife's not understanding their role. Whatever it may be, we get in trouble a lot because of that. Now, we also know that in Proverbs, this, this woman that is that is held up is the woman known as folly. Who shouts and tries to draw people in to sin and so on and so forth. Sort of an image of foolishness. Realize that sin always appears to be so, so wonderful. And it has many disguises. We are currently in our home. We're reading at night through the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The first book is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I don't know if you've read those books or not, but Lucy and Hank in particular, our two oldest, are really into it. And we've we've covered up to the point where they've they've now come back into Narnia, all four of the children, and they are uh, unknowingly being led by one of them, whose name is Edmund, into the trap of the White Witch. They don't know this. Edmund knows that he thinks there's something incredible because he was given by this white witch something called Turkish Delight, which was this incredibly sweet snack that he can't get enough of. And the queen, the white witch, has promised him more of that if he will only bring his brother and the sisters to her as well sin is just like that, and I talked to Lucy and Hank about it last night. It always looks appealing. It always looks desirable, and it blinds us quite often to what the real results will be. But the person of wisdom, the teacher says, sees things for what they really are. I know that wickedness is stupidity, and folly is madness. And so you avoid those things. Those who are wise will recognize the traps and the chains that sin will bring. And you'll see temptation for what it is, and you will avoid it. You'll be a person who sees the big picture of consequences. There is great value in wisdom. Not only that, but it also sets you apart. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like the wise person? And who knows the interpretation of the matter? Wise people are very rare. You probably could could name, maybe, uh, counting on, well maybe using both your hands, (laughs) the number of truly wise people you know, maybe only one hand the truly wise people that you know. It sets you apart. It makes you different. And then, chapter 8, verse 1, the second part, it changes your outlook. A man's wisdom brightens his face. But your countenance is different. It shines out from the inside, reflecting God's favor on your life. And the sternness of His face has changed. You have more boldness, more courage, when you have more wisdom. So wisdom has great value, but it gives no guarantees. Why well, do we know that? Look at verse 15. In my feudal life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. We don't have to provide a tremendous amount of interpretation for you to understand this truth. Bad things happen to really good people. Godly, God-loving, Jesus-following people rotten, awful, terrible things can happen to those people. And on the flip side, people who want nothing to do with the Lord, who thumb their nose at Him, who create an atmosphere in their own lives and for the lives of others that's nothing but sin and evil and wickedness, sometimes those people live much longer than those who we would say are righteous. Wisdom has great value. But unfortunately, it does not offer a guarantee that 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. Now, we want this to be true. We want 2 plus 2 to always equal 4 in our lives. We we want to be able to tell our children that if you are just wise, if you'll follow the Lord, then everything will be okay. And you may have told those that you have influence over that same thing, but I want you to know that while that seems to be the pattern, yes, that's established in Scripture, that's not always true. It's not a guarantee that just because you follow the Lord and that you try to live for Him, that everything in your life will be good. We are living testimonies to the fact that that's just not true. We could line ourselves up and be here all afternoon telling story after story after story about even when you followed the Lord, there were times when things did not go well for you. They're people who die young even though they're living for Jesus Christ. So wisdom, yes, has great value, but it is not a guaranteed formula to long life or prosperous life. So, as a result, we've got to live on this balance beam through life, knowing that we are called to a certain life, but there are no guarantees. How do we split the middle of those things and live with some sanity and live for the Lord in the midst of it? The teacher tells us in verse 18 of chapter 7, "...it is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand, for the one who fears God will end up with both of them." This balance beam sort of existence... so he's speaking here of what we're going to discuss for the next couple of minutes, that we must live on sort of a balance beam, that neither wisdom or foolishness guarantees a particular outcome in life, but there is a life God has called us to. So I want to roll through these. And what the teacher has told us, here's the balance beam. And I think you'll see this as we we discuss it. First of all, do what's right, Expect life to be fair. Now we've already covered this in, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you were here for that particular sermon, the main point of that was life isn't fair, and then you die. A really encouraging sermon. It really was. Um, half the church left after after that. They didn't come back. <laughs> But do what's right, but don't expect life to be fair. It goes back to verse 15. I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. Now, we know that Scripture instructs us to do what is pleasing to God, but we can't foolishly believe that this will prevent us from experiencing the true realities of life. We still live on this earth, and it is a sinful place that has unfortunate consequences because of sin that you might get caught up in even by no fault of your own. Is that fair? No. Is it the way God intended it to be from the beginning? No. But it's reality. But does that excuse us now we can go live however we want because the life isn't going to be fair? What difference does it make what I do? No. It's a balancing act. Do what's right, but don't expect life to be fair. Not everyone gets what they deserve. And praise God, none of us are currently getting right now what we deserve, which is eternal punishment in hell. We are not experiencing that now because of the great and gracious love of Jesus Christ, who's offered us salvation by His death and resurrection. If we got what we deserved, we would all be dead and gone and in hell right now. That sounds pretty harsh, but it's true. Praise God, we don't get what we deserve that He has given us out of His grace, something we do not deserve and cannot earn. And as a result, we are called to do what's right, even if and because even life is not fair. Now, the fact that bad things happen to good people who are trying to live for the Lord can send you reeling. And maybe it has caused you just to lose your mind for a time, question God, not like Him, whatever it may be, it can do that to you, or it can challenge you to continue to trust and obey the Lord without expecting life to be fair, taking life as it comes from the hand of God, and that's the balancing act we are called to live, to trust God, to obey Him, to do what's right, even though it won't guarantee life will be exactly the way we want it. It's tough, but that's the balancing act. Secondly, be righteous, but not self-righteous. Be righteous, but not self-righteous. Now, he gives us a little bit of confusing stuff. Chapter 7, verse 16. Don't be excessively righteous. What? Don't be excessively righteous. Is this not the Bible? Are we not called to be righteous as much as we can be? I mean, why is this stuff in the Bible? He says then at the at the end of that verse, why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively righteous. How can righteousness be a bad thing? I don't know if you read the scripture and ask any questions, but I would really encourage you to do so. How in the world can righteousness, why would he give advice on not being excessively righteous? Is He giving us permission to do a a little sinning? (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Uh, Okay. Uh, I guess if I don't do too much, okay. Maybe that's the balancing act, you know. I'll just do a little. Is that what He's saying to us? The, the, The problem with righteousness... Can become that instead of it truly being God-righteousness in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's our righteousness that focuses on the externals and making everyone think and making it look as if we've got it all together. When on the inside, we just like Jesus called the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. But on the outside, look as if there's something incredible. And on the inside, all it is is the stench of death. And he said to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips. You say that you love me. You say that you obey me, but your hearts are far away. There is a problem with righteousness when it becomes only focused on the externals and keeping up an image, and it's not about the inside." And that kind of righteousness will destroy you. Why? Because it's not the righteousness that pleases God. It's not the life God has called you to. It's a self-oriented life, and you're trying now to earn God's favor. When God says you can't do that anyway, you can see how that can destroy you. So he says be righteous, but not self-righteous, because that will destroy you. Then he says be wise, but not in your own eyes. He says don't be overly wise. Well, wait a minute. How can wisdom be a bad thing? Well, it can be a bad thing when we believe our wisdom has now made us independent of God or that our wisdom and our, our great understanding of life now gives us authority over our own lives. as if our, our wisdom now uh, can carry us without the Lord, maybe giving us this guarantee that we can't find in Scripture that we'll live a long life. I remember in middle school having a teacher who took over for a teacher of mine who died. And this new teacher said, in response to the death of this other teacher, well, I've made a deal with the man upstairs. I've got 103 years. And even as a 7th grader, as a 12-year-old kid, I thought, you're insane. He, He believed his wisdom would get him some deal with the man upstairs for 103 years on the earth. I have no idea what happened to that man. He may live forever. I have no idea. He may get his 103 years, but he will live it in that attitude apart from the true man upstairs because he is living on his own wisdom. Be wise, but not in your own eyes. The Bible speaks against this quite a bit. If you read Proverbs, it's about true wisdom coming from the Lord. So when our wisdom is apart from the wisdom that God calls us to in the Bible, which is centered on Jesus Christ, then we are wise now not because God has brought it to us, but because we think we're pretty smart. And those who think they are something because of their righteousness, their self-righteousness, or because of their wisdom, are headed for destruction. Why? Because Proverbs says that pride goes for destruction. A proud spirit before it falls. So be righteous, but not self-righteous. Be wise, but not in your own eyes. And then avoid sin, but don't expect to be perfect. Avoid sin, but don't expect to be perfect. Do you see the balancing act that it is through life? A walk with Jesus is truly balancing these things. Avoid sin. Do not be excessively wicked, and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Now, he's not saying that a little sinfulness, a little foolishness is okay, as long as you don't go too far. What he's saying is don't give yourself to those things. Don't willfully and consciously give yourself over to sin. Don't do those things. So avoid sin. But, he says in verse 20, there is certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good, and some versions say all the time, and never sins. You are called to be holy and to avoid sin, but do not expect yourself to be perfect. Why? Because you will not be perfect. It's pretty simple. There are folks here today who are struggling with the fact, myself included, that you're not perfect. You are a perfectionist. And you are miserable. You're miserable. Because you are trying to accomplish something that is absolutely impossible for you to accomplish. But keep going. Bang your head against the wall. You know what we do? Your forehead hurting by now? I mean, is it not you turn around and bang the other side? I mean, just even things out. I don't know. But you're trying to be perfect. Absolutely, the Bible calls us to avoid sin, but we should not expect to be perfect. There's only one who's lived that is perfect. Only one. And you're not looking at him. And I'm not looking at him either. Next, he says, care about people, but not everything they say. Verses 21 to 22 are just, I think, classic. Don't pay attention to everything people say. Or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Again, not a lot of interpretation that's needed. I mean, this is pretty self-explanatory back during this time, you would have the the master and the servant, and they would know each other fairly well. The servant would probably have some dirt on the master. He'd probably know a little bit about the master, and so if the master's running around sort of paranoid, what's everybody saying about me, then he's probably going to hear some good things, and he's probably going to hear his servant cursing him behind his back. Not that anybody knows what that's like to experience in here. You've never had that happen to you. Everybody loves you. You are so perfect. And incredibly wise. No one's ever had a crossword to say about you, and you certainly have never done that to your boss, to anybody that's been in authority over you, your parents, anybody. <laughs> what he's saying is don't <laughs> don't care too much about what they say. Care about people, absolutely. That's a biblical biblical command. But not all they say. Why? Because you know what? You're probably going to hear some stuff that you just don't want to hear in the two roles that I've chosen uh, in my life that God has called me to, one is coaching, the other is ministry. Yeah. Most most people... Uh, like to, let's say, critique those two professions, coaching and ministry, like to critique those, you know, helpful comments, you know, just constructive criticism, right? You probably have experienced some things like that, constructive criticism. If you listen too much, if you get caught up in it, you're going to hear people say things about you that you'd probably just rather avoid. But if you realize it, you've done the same thing anyway. So care about people, absolutely, but not about everything they say. This is tough. Because the words people say really can hurt. The old thing of sticks and stones and yada yada, that's garbage. Words really do hurt. But if you're going to be a person of impact, a person of wisdom who truly loves the Lord, you are going to encounter people who are not what you wish they were, who need forgiveness, who will make mistakes, and who will say things that are hurtful based upon the fact that we aren't perfect and we shouldn't expect others to be well. Now, there's balance here. Wisdom teaches balance, that we're not to respond quickly or, or without grace to those who hurt us. And if you, whether you like it or not, the person who walks closely with God, the person who truly lives with wisdom, that person, whether you like it or not, is going to be a person who's not easily offended. The closer you get to the Lord, the more light that shines on your own sinfulness. The less offended you will be by the people who do things to you, because you'll understand the grace that you've received from the Lord and the great offense that your sin is. If you are a person who truly walks with the Lord, I really believe that one of the marks of spiritual maturity will be that you are less and less offended by all the junk that people are going to do and say to you about it. I really believe that. And so if that's a struggle for you, I would say take that to the Lord, let Him crucify that on the cross of Jesus Christ, and help you mature in that area. There's a little pastoral challenge for you about that. You can't stop what other people are going to say, and you shouldn't let that stop you from being the person God has called you to be. So care about people, but not everything they say. Next, be discerning, but not a know-it-all. Be discerning, but not a know-it-all. Fellas, I think I skipped that one on the the presentation. Be discerning, but not a know-it-all. He says, I've tested all this by wisdom. I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. Why can we not be a know-it-all? Because we can't know it all. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? He searches diligently. But he realizes that even his own human wisdom has limits. The wise person will know what he doesn't know, and it will make him wiser still. So be discerning in life, but not a know-it-all. No one except God Himself knows everything. And then search for wise people, but don't expect to find them. Well, that's comforting. I tell my kids, let's, let, let's surround yourself with wise people. But you know, that's not going to be a whole lot of folks. He says, I have discovered this by adding one thing to another, verses 27 and 28, to find out the explanation, which my soul continually searches for but does not find. Among a thousand people I have found one true man, but among these I have not found one true woman. Because of sin, we are warped and we are prone to foolishness. Now, keep in mind, this is not some slam against women. We didn't have the opportunities that men did during this time to to get the schooling and education that might make them appear to be a little wiser and so on. He's not talking about that. He's just saying wisdom is rare, no matter if you look for men or you look for women. It's extremely rare. And if this is true, and if it's also true that we are shaped by those that we surround ourselves with, then we must be very selective. Maybe this is a lesson for those who are still finding themselves easily influenced or in a shaping process in life, maybe as a young person. Ran into a, to a young lady while I was in Louisville who was in my youth group at my, my home church there. And she's now in college. She's a junior in college. And she was telling me that, that I asked her, I said, Are you, are you seeing anybody? Are you, you serious with, with any fellows at school or anything like that? And she said, No. She said, But I tell you, all the, the girls that I'm around just say, You know, you just can't be too picky about guys in today's world. And praise God, she looks at that and says, That's insane. The truth is, let me tell you this, if you are on a search to surround yourself, be it in a relationship, in a dating way, or marriage, or whatever it may be, if you're a young person, you are going to have to search for a while, I'm sure, to find a truly wise person that God wants you to be This young lady is, I think, on the right path. You can search for wise people, but don't expect to find too many. I would encourage you, find those three or four friends that you have that can be extremely wise for you and and be content. Be content with others. Desire to be who God made you to be, but don't try to get there on your own. Only see this, verse 29, I have discovered that God made people upright, but they have pursued many schemes. Our sinful, human-oriented schemes have led us away from God. But they will not lead us back to God. We cannot follow the same human-oriented path that we've taken away from God to now get back to Him. God made man, it says in Genesis chapter 3, without sin, perfect in the Garden of Eden. And then man chose to sin, and as a result, every other person who has ever come into this earth has been born with a sinful nature who will sin and is apart from God because of that sin. We are not who God created us to be. We want to be, and I would challenge you, desire to be, but don't try to get there on your own. You cannot get there through education or through performance or through skill or talent or anything you can conceive and scheme to do. Only through Jesus Christ can you be the person and be returned to the person God has created you to be. That's it. That's the truth of Scripture. That leads us to the main point of the sermon today. Everything builds up to this. There is this balance beam to live on. But I want you to know that as we take the full Scripture into account, the teacher sort of stops and says, well, I guess that's it. But we realize he doesn't have the full revelation of God that we have. You look at the whole Scripture, and we realize that there is only one. Only one who has successfully navigated all of life. Only one who can enable you to do the same. And His name is Jesus. And if you miss this, if you have paid attention to this point and you tune out now, you will fall in the end. Because you may become a wonderful person who's wise and good to people, and you don't pay attention to what they say. You let it roll off your back, and you're a good influence, and you've got wise friends. But if you miss this, then you will fall in the end. You will fall off the balance beam for all eternity because you've missed Jesus. He is the only one who has successfully navigated all of life, all the things we've seen, and the only one who can enable you to do the same. Only Jesus. If you look at your bulletin and look back down, only He always did what was right and endured the most unfair case in history. Only He was completely righteous without being self-righteous. Only He was completely wise but never arrogant about it. Only He avoided sin and was totally perfect. Only He cared about people and loved them no matter what they said or did, and He did it perfectly. Only He is the one true wise person who has ever lived. Only He was completely... Who God the Father sent Him to be. Only He has obeyed completely the Heavenly Father without hesitation, even in the midst of temptation. Only He has faced life as we know it and walked perfectly on the balance. Sheet. And as a result, only He could be the perfect payment that God demands for our sin. As a result, only He deserves our worship, and only He should be the one that we fashion our lives after. He alone has successfully navigated life, and only He can enable you to do the same. Jesus is the only one who can help you do what's right, even when life isn't fair. You try it on your own. You're not the last one. Only He can can help you do that. Only through Him can you receive true righteousness that comes from God, that covers all of your sin. Only through Jesus can you gain true wisdom for living and remain humble at the same time. Only through Jesus can you be made new again, avoiding sin and receiving forgiveness when you do sin. Only through Jesus, in a a relationship with Him, can you receive a heart for people, a heart that loves them no matter what they say or what they do. Only Jesus can lead you to the wise people that He wants around you and soften the blow when you don't find very many of them. Only through Jesus can we be who God created us to be through the new life, that His death and His resurrection offers us. And only through Him can we be made whole again. I challenge you just as we close to evaluate how are you doing on that balance beam of life? If you look at those deeper issues and then you say, I'm not sure I'm navigating this very well. I seem to fall all the time. Then I would ask you as a result... Have you given your life fully to Jesus Christ? And are you walking daily in the power that only He can bring through the Holy Spirit? Have you surrendered your life to Him, taking on His life through you, and are you walking with Him each day? If that's the case, and if you are, then you will experience what it's like to be enabled by the power of God to successfully navigate life, even the parts you don't like. Apart from Him, the Bible says we can do nothing. With Him, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. It's worth considering today on the balance beam of life: Who's carrying you? Is it you, or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. for you this morning as I've done in the past, just to connect with you in a way that you'll know I'll be praying for you and that you can be confident someone is on your side and there to help you. You may be a person who says, you know what, I'm falling off this balance beam. I, I'm not doing it the way that I know that God wants me to do it. And it's because I've been trying all of this on my own. And I need this morning to give it all to Jesus Christ. I need His life to take over mine. And I need to walk by His Holy Spirit. Powered each day for the life that He wants You may be a person who's, who's given your life to Jesus Christ in faith, but you've never walked that way with Him. You may be a person this morning who for the very first time needs to say, you know what? I am all about myself. And I realize that in the end, that big fall off the balance mean will result in eternal punishment for me. And I want Jesus to stand. either one of those, I'd like to pray for you. And as we've done in the past, it's simply like for you, if you say, you know what, please pray for me. I want Jesus to take total control. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want him. I'd love for you just to lift your eyes, make eye contact with me, put them right back down, and I will be praying specifically for you in the next couple of weeks. So if you would, feel free to do that. No one else looking around. Won't embarrass you, won't call you out. Not in any way. Heavenly Father, I thank You for those who are willing to admit their need for You. The Lord, may today not be a day of discouragement, but one of yielding to You to receive Your power which brings such great encouragement and lifting to us. As Your Word says in Ecclesiastes, Lord, may it change the countenance of our face, the wisdom that You bring to our lives. So, Lord, I pray for those who need this morning just to surrender all that they are to Jesus Christ. God, I pray today they walk away from themselves And be enveloped by you. We thank you that you are enough. We thank you that we don't have to navigate life by ourselves, but Lord, you have done it successfully and will enable us to do the same. So we come to you in faith, Lord, believing your word is true, surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. I pray today would be one of absolute encouragement for those. Who find themselves living only for them and now turning to you. Listen. In Jesus' name. Amen.